We're going to get to the word uh, right away here this morning. Before we do, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we're grateful that we get to be in a place like this today. We get to gather in freedom in this place. We get to gather around your word. We get to gather by your spirit, and it's only your spirit that moves us to be here. It's only your spirit that makes us the church. Otherwise, we'd be a bunch of individuals in a room. But it is your spirit that unites us. It is our conviction and belief and proclamation that your son rose from the dead. And on that stands everything. And then your spirit begins to work. God, thank you for that. Thank you that you've gathered us here this morning. May we be animated by your spirit as we listen to your word today. This we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said before, I'm Pastor Evan. I'm glad to be with you this morning on this day when we get to both uh, celebrate God's word and the table together. Um, we're gonna, we are going to read from Romans 10, 9. That's the entire text this morning, but we have a lot of other texts that we're going to use. So I'd encourage you to find Romans 10, 9 so you can see it for yourself. But as, we, as you find that, let me just begin with a simple question. What are you? The simple question, what are you? Are you an omnivore? Are you a vegetarian? Are you a vegan? Any vegans in the house? Are you a pescatarian? How about, and I didn't know this until this week, a flexitarian. Have you heard that one? Okay, so what are you? It's, it's not hard to figure out what most of those are because we've encountered most of them. An omnivore, somebody who eats both meat and vegetables. Now I've discovered that a lot of people who eat meat sometimes don't like a lot of vegetables, but we still eat them, right? We still eat them and we still eat fruits and that kind of thing. So we're not pure carnivores. Uh, vegetarians, obviously we know they eat vegetables, not vegetables, but not meat. Uh, vegans don't eat animal byproducts at all. Pescatarians are what used to be called vegetarians. If you ever heard that term, vegetarians who eat fish and seafood and that kind of thing. And then flexitarian people felt left out apparently when they did meatless Mondays and things like that. So they invented this term. I bring all this up because they're terms that have a meaning and you don't go around and say, I'm a vegetarian who eats meat. I've met people who have said this, I'm a vegetarian who eats meat, but there's something wrong with that, right? Because by very definition, a vegetarian doesn't eat meat. They might eat animal byproducts, la, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff. A vegan definitely doesn't. So these different terms, even the invention of this, this flexitarian term tells you that these all have meanings and they all have meanings outside of the individual person. I'm not a, an omnivore for me, I would just be an omnivore. Somebody wouldn't be a vegetarian because it's me, it's, I'm a vegetarian. It's a definition outside of myself. And it's important to recognize that that's how things work quite often when it comes to words and ideas. Um, and I wanna apply that idea to Jesus Christ and the proclamation in Romans 10:9 right now. So let's read that text. Romans 10:9 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I was reminded this week, uh, reading through some old material from Donald Frisk, uh, the late covenant pastor, that there are some 160 references in the New Testament to being in Christ. And by and large, the idea of being in Christ is the operative way that the New Testament talks about our relationship with Christ. We often will speak of accepting Christ um, or, or relationships where we kind of pull in, you know, that, that relationship, Christ in my heart. All of that is important in biblical language, but being in Christ is actually the operative way that the New Testament talks about our relationship with Christ. 
It's not simply accepting Christ in your heart. And the idea of being in Christ is very much the same idea as Jesus is Lord. That's why I bring it up right now. To be in Christ or to proclaim Jesus is Lord is that what he is, what Jesus is, you are to be. What Jesus is, you are to be, and he sets the terms of the relationship, not you. And that's very important to recognize when it comes to our walk with Jesus Christ and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. It's not simply Christ in us. Both biblical language, but quite, quite more the, the stress is on being in Christ. And he defines it. We're defined by him, not the other way around. And in our culture, where we sometimes want to make everything about me and individualize everything, we can easily individualize our relationship with Jesus Christ and start to miss the point. So our point that we want to make today, and we're going to do it next week too, because we're going to look at verse 10 next week, is that to declare Jesus is Lord is to live as if Jesus is in charge. He sets the terms of the arrangement. He sets the marching orders. When we look at that first word that appears there, if you declare is what my translation has, perhaps you have declare, confess might be in there too. It's the same word. Uh, a declaration uh, in its simplest term is, is essentially a creedal statement. It's to say you believe something. And the first time we run into something like that in a decisive way about Jesus in the New Testament is Mark 8, verse 29. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he asks them the question, who do you say that I am? And they say, you know, uh, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. But then he turns it a little bit more personal. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter makes this profession. You are the Messiah. The Greek is Christ. That's where we get Christ. The Messiah. You are the Christ. There's a sense in which he's, he's digging into something bigger than himself by saying that. Maybe we don't think of that as a simple creedal statement, statement like we're, we're talking about, but creeds are simply statements of belief. And when we say a creed as a people, as we'll say Romans 10 at the end as a creed, because that's what it is, we're stating that belief not simply as what I believe personally, yes, but it enters us into something bigger, into a, a larger statement and belief and group. I'm with the people that make this statement of faith. And you can actually see that then uh, more pronounced when Paul and Silas are talking to a Roman guard in Acts 16. There you have a more definitive creed or statement that's impressed upon this soldier. They have, you know, they're calling for the jailer and they reply to the jailer because he's asking, what must I do to be saved? They say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. It's pretty straightforward when you get down to it. Make the creedal confession that Jesus is Lord, but that also enters you with the people that say that Jesus is Lord. You're joining with something that's outside of yourself, not defined by you. You are going to be defined by it by making that creedal confession. Paul is following the same trajectory of confession here as we see in our text today from Romans, as he follows there. How do you know if you're saved? Well, how do you know if you're a disciple of Christ? It's to make the confession that Jesus is Lord. That's what we're declaring. It's something bigger than ourselves. But the other thing about that idea of confess or declare, the actual Greek word that's in Romans 10 for declare literally means to say the same thing. So what I'm saying in that declaration is whatever Jesus is saying. That's what's being proclaimed in, in that. Uh, can I go down a little bit in the volume? I'm ringing up here. 
to say the same thing, to confess or declare Jesus is the one. I believe what Jesus says, that belief exists outside of me, and I'm joining into that. That's the declaration and the confession. And then that belief, and we'll talk about this more next week, that belief is proven by action. We don't just declare it and say, whoop-de-doo, I said it with my mouth. It's got to be demonstrated. That's all encapsulated in that word to declare. But if we get more to the point, we want to get to the issue of what it means to declare that Jesus is Lord. That's really the decisive statement here. When we look at this idea of Lord, we run into Lord in the Old Testament um, as sort of Adonai, translated usually capital letters Lord, but Lord, as we encounter it here, Lord is a title of respect, it's a title of authority that's given of someone of greater stature and certainly of greater power and authority than you is a Lord, the next level up, if you will. In the ancient world, it could have been applied to fathers in the household. Uh, it could have been applied to local leaders. And it certainly, and we'll see this later on, was applied to Caesar as Lord. And it had divine implications that came with that when it was applied to Caesar. Somebody who has that authority. And the idea of being a Lord is not just that you have authority. It's also that you have power with it. Those two things go together. You have the power to do something and you have the right to do it because you have the authority and that implies that you have ownership over the thing, whatever it is. You own it. It's yours. That's why you have the authority. And that's why you have the power. Now we can see, if we kind of play around with the idea of authority, we can see that um, authority can be seen in different ways and power can be put forth as authority at times. So Satan and his demons try to convince us that they have authority when they just have power and real limited power at that. It's pretty wimpy power when you put it down to it, but they're trying to confuse us into thinking that they have authority. Now, Jesus even calls Satan the ruler of this world, or the prince of this world. He's kind of specifically talking about over the temple and how uh, he's usurped something that's not his. He's playing on that idea, but Satan and his demons will try and confuse us into thinking that they are the authority, that they have power over us and over this world. In fact, uh, famously in uh, his book, Why God Became a Man, Anselm, in the Middle Ages, uh, in one of the most famous kind of uh, working out of the atonement, talks about how God on the cross uh, fooled Satan because he thought he really was the ruler of this world. I don't know if Satan really thinks that, don't want to be in his head to find out, but what, what, there is this idea that we can sometimes be fooled by that, thinking that Satan has way more power than he does, that his demons have way more power than they do, and that it's almost like that, that deceives us into thinking they have some authority too. They want us to believe that, but he has neither of those. What he has is deceit on his side. That's not actually authority, and it's real limited power. We can also see that we, I don't know if you realize this, but you and I, just by being created in the image of God, have some sense of authority that God has delegated to us. We are to be fruitful and multiply. That was the first command, and the second command is, God said to Adam, I created this place Take care of it. Literally, be my ambassadors in this world for creation. Do what I want you to do to care for this place. It's mine. I love it. Care for it like my own. That's authority imparted to us. Now, it's not all, it's not all authority. He even gave authority to Adam to name the animals. But even as disciples of Jesus Christ, if we follow Jesus Christ, we get delegated authority as well to go and make disciples, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to teach what Jesus taught, to be an icon of Jesus Christ so that when people look at us, they see through us and see Christ. We have that kind of authority. 
That's a remarkable authority, brothers and sisters, isn't it? We also have a limited sense of power, but it's only given to us by the Holy Spirit when we become disciples because of that authority given to us. What we recognize is when it comes to being Lord, Jesus has full and legitimate authority and power over all the world. He created it. He has full and legitimate authority over all, uh, over all the world because he also redeemed it through the cross. It's his. It's no one else's. And any delegated authority or power that we get is only because he's given it, but he's the one who has the power to give it. He sets the terms. So that's the idea of declaring Jesus as Lord. He's in charge, not me. There may be some delegated authority, but it's only because he delegated it, he has the power to do it. We live by his terms, not our own anymore. The other piece of this, the idea of being saved, and by being saved specifically by Jesus being raised from the dead, because that's the other half of the proclamation. If you believe in your heart uh, that Jesus is Lord, and believe that, uh, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Wow, I have it memorized, but it doesn't sound like it. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Glad I have it in front of me. The idea of resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead. It's the, uh, it's the hinge of our faith. It rests or falls on that. That's part of the belief there. Now, for the last 200 plus years, part of the conversation when it comes to the resurrection of the dead is, did it really occur? You know, constantly, you'll hear this through the past few hundred years, of, well, God doesn't, people stay dead, dead people stay dead. That's not the kind of stuff that happens. Just so we're clear on what's exactly being proclaimed and what you are proclaiming by that is, God raised Jesus from the dead by his power. It wasn't by some natural means that Jesus was raised from the dead. It was God's power raising Jesus from the dead. Interestingly, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's, there's a lot more of a cultural trend now to not actually doubt a lot of what we call the supernatural in the same way that people used to doubt it, and even doubt the resurrection like people used to doubt it. Now, among people kind of younger than me, uh, definitely younger than me, there's a little bit more, if they're open to things spiritual, they're more open to the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead. They're just far more worried about who cares? What does it mean? Right? And that's a really important question to answer. So let's talk a little bit about that. When it comes to you will be saved, what does that mean by that? That you will be saved by this belief, by this confession and declaration. Well, a few things. There's obviously more we could add to the list, but we have a spiritual salvation and a physical salvation that comes along with this. I want to focus on the spiritual today. And that is, when we say yes to Jesus Christ, declare Jesus as Lord, and believe that he was raised from the dead, it does something to us from the inside out. It makes us a new creation, is what it does. It starts that work. That is the spiritual inheritance and the spiritual salvation we have, because we make that declaration. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We become a new creation through Jesus Christ. Salvation affects what God is doing in you. It also means that if Jesus is Lord, that we relinquish control. Salvation is not just that you become a better you by your own self-control. 
and your own self-actuation. Salvation is not just becoming a better you by watching a Netflix documentary on how to organize your closet or your, your furniture around your house. It's actually death to the old self. Even though there were some good things about the old self, it was shattered, broken, and vandalized by sin. And through Jesus Christ, and through that proclamation that he is Lord, he's the one who's going to make us something new out of what was broken with the old. You can see, again, talking about theories of the atonement, how God put together things. There's a classic theory of the atonement that came up in the Middle Ages uh, that, that basically made the proclamation that what Jesus did on the cross was uh, it's moral influence is what is called the moral influence theory. What Jesus did on the cross is our divine example, and we are supposed to emulate that divine example of love. Well, yeah, but it's an incomplete picture, right? So don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's good, but it doesn't complete the fact that we can't save ourselves. Yeah, we should emulate the love of Christ. I hope I have some witnesses to that in here, but Jesus has to do something in us first to remake us because we can't get there on our own. By the way, an interesting uh, movie that came out recently that was put across your radar is Raya, that Disney movie that came out recently. I don't think they meant to do it in the movie, but it clearly demonstrates how something outside of yourself is the only thing that can save the people in the movie. Very interesting. I don't think they meant to do that, but it kind of preaches that pretty well. It takes something outside of ourselves to save us. We can't save ourselves. Don't try. It won't work. We'll fail every time. So we become a new creation. That's part of salvation. Second thing is restored relationships, first with God, then with others. If we look at Ephesians 2, 14 through 17, this is talking about the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile specifically. It says, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those of you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Restored relationship, first with God, then with other humans. When it talks about that dividing wall of hostility, it's clearly talking about between Jew and Gentile, but let's face it, that existed between us and God, and not because God put it there. It's because our sin put that there and broke that relationship that we should have had with God, that put us in right relationship with him. It's been broken by sin. Salvation, you see, to be saved affects how we even are able to relate to God and how we're able to relate to one another. Salvation affects how we interact. And God wants those who are far from him to come home. If we've said yes to Jesus, guess what? We're on that path. Isn't that a great thing? But God wants those who are far from home to come to him. And if you follow Jesus Christ, you should want that too. And if Jesus is Lord in your life, and you have no interest in sharing the good news, that has to bring the question, is Jesus Lord of that area of my life? Is Jesus actually the Lord or not? I'm not talking about the mechanics of having conversations with others. I'm talking about the desire. If the desire isn't even in us, I think we have to ask the question, how do I need to put this before the Lord that this can be made new as well? Because this is God's heart. It needs to be mine too.
It's a non-negotiable to following Jesus. That restored relationship doesn't just affect this. It also relates here, but it also relates to how we interact with the world if we follow Jesus Christ. We want that for everyone. That's the spiritual salvation that we have. New creation from the inside out. Restored relationship through and through and through. That's our desire. And third, we have a new understanding of history and our place in it. That's grandiose, isn't it? We have a new understanding of history and our place in it. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The world without Christ is perishing. Those of us who follow Jesus Christ, who have made the declaration, the profession of faith that Jesus is Lord, and we believe God raised him from the dead, and on that our hope hinges. We are not perishing. We have a renewed purpose in this world to help save those who are perishing, to help usher in the kingdom of God. Now, it's only the Holy Spirit who saves. It's only the power of the cross that does that. That's why the moral influence idea of the example of Jesus on the cross is good only to a certain level. But God has called us to be co-laborers in that task, to be harvesters in the field. For the message of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God, and that power is in you when you make that declaration. Salvation affects your understanding of purpose. You live as God's ambassador in this world under his direction. Is any of this good news to anyone in the house today? I hope so. The other thing, and I think this is one of the best pieces of news. Uh, we live with this piece of news in our house a lot, and I'm not going to dwell on it today. Uh, but there's not just this sort of spiritual salvation. I'm using that in a super broad way. There's a physical salvation promise that's there too. You know, the, the curse of sin has wounded us in all kinds of ways in all sorts of ways. Salvation includes restored bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. Read 1 Corinthians 15 this afternoon. Read all about it. God has promised us something remarkable. The wounds of this life, the way that things are working right now, the, the brokenness that we experience in this life, not all of that's going to be healed now. God does sometimes heal those things. Those are signs of what's going to come when we live in the new heaven and the new earth under in his presence, in his glory, and he puts our bodies to right. What we can say about Jesus' resurrection, it's a pretty remarkable thing. His body was different after the resurrection. He didn't die. The promise is that we will all experience that resurrection. Again, read 1 Corinthians 15. And what we can say about Jesus' resurrection is that it reveals our hope. What Jesus experienced first in history, we get to experience later in history in the full resurrection of the body. Healed from what ails us in this life. And I know around our house, we dwell on the idea that those of us in our family who can't run will be able to run to him. Man, that's a great hope. But that brings up a complication when we consider that. If we make the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, we don't live in a world that runs at that speed and makes that same proclamation. And so I want to take just a quick historical example and ask the question, how did the early church live as if Jesus is Lord? And it didn't always feel that way. 
and then ask the same question to us. How did the early Christians live Jesus as Lord? Well, they faced the conundrum. As I said, making the proclamation Jesus as Lord obviously became a political statement um, and a statement against empire early on in the Christian endeavor because if Caesar is proclaiming to be Lord, then he's proclaiming to be greater than Jesus. And in fact, often uh, there were times when people had to make the proclamation, Caesar is Lord, everybody in the empire was to do this, get a little piece of paper that said, I made a sacrifice to the divine Caesar as Lord. And at times, and we'll see in a moment, that also meant a rejection of Christ as Lord. So the world's not working at that pace. And in some cases that came with uh, a penalty of maybe uh, payment. Sometimes it came with pen penalty of torture or death. To have to choose, is Jesus Lord or is Caesar Lord? I'll give you the example of one of my heroes of the faith, Polycarp. I'm not going to read much of his story, but you can find it online, The Martyrdom of Polycarp. It's free online. I can point you there if you want later. Um, he, was brought, he was the bishop of Smyrna, which is in modern Turkey. And uh, he was a disciple of John, from whom we get the book in the, uh, the New Testament. He was brought up as an example, this is early after the New Testament period, to make the sacrifice to Caesar. So he's brought in, in uh, quite old age, it turns out, and he's brought into these sort of local officials who say to him, what harm is it to say, Lord Caesar, and to offer sacrifice and so forth and be saved? So that was the challenge. Others faced this exact same challenge. Say, Lord Caesar, Make the sacrifice, move on with your life. If you worship six or seven gods, who cares? But if you only worship one God and believe Jesus is Lord, like I said, that's a political statement. You're saying Caesar is not Lord. We might honor our earthly rulers, as Paul even says that, under a very difficult ruler who was killing Christians. But I'm not going to say he's divine, and I'm not going to recant Christ, because later on they keep pushing him up, and he finally ends up over the local regional leader, and they say to him, uh, he pressed him and he said, take the oath and I'll let you go. Revile Christ, because that's what was involved in it. Say Caesar is Lord, revile Christ as Lord. And then Polycarp says this, for 80 and six years have I been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He's eventually burned at the stake, doesn't burn according to the text and they have to stab him. But he's a martyr for the faith. If Jesus is Lord, though, you can see how other believers around him would have been asking the question, if Jesus is Lord, why are the Romans still in charge? Right? If Jesus is Lord, why does persecution still occur? Why is our bishop being killed and mistreated? We could ask the same kind of things. Why do I still experience wounds of this world, hurt, pain, physical debilitation? Why do we still explain, uh, encounter racial, uh, uh, racial divisions and other brokenness around, both outside in our relationships and in our bodies, if we're made in the image of God? Why do we still experience those if Jesus is Lord? Especially if I've made the proclamation of Jesus, if Jesus is Lord, why do I still sometimes feel broken or experience brokenness? Well, there's some good news, and it doesn't sound like good news at first, but it gets there. The good news is Jesus told us it would never be easy. He said, of course you're going to face troubles if you follow me. They're going to hate you if you follow me. 
That doesn't sound like good news right away. But we recognize that if Jesus is Lord, then our present struggles in this life are but a chapter in God's divine story of salvation. They're but a moment in the eternity that God has for those who claim Jesus is Lord. Because he is over everything that goes on. It's his. And when we live under the lordship of Jesus, it means we ask the question, who's in charge? Who's in charge? Is pain in charge? Is the devil in charge? Are demons in charge? Is sin in charge? Are local leaders in charge? Am I in charge? Or is Jesus in charge? Is Jesus Lord of all? How should we then live if Jesus is Lord? You know, we live in a world that's spiritual but not religious. People say they're not bound by creeds, but they are. They're bound by whatever fad is going on, even if they're spiritual but not religious or even not interested, right? In the 60s, people went for the Eastern religions and ditched Christianity, and you had a phenomenon over history of those that left, uh, especially in the boomer generation, and then my, one of my favorite terms, the boomerangs, those who came back to the faith, but then uh, in the 90s, you can think of, you know, my own generation, a lot of people went for new age whateverness that was out there. Now you have a lot of people in the youngest generations who are living apathyism or complete anti-Christianity. So they either have an atheism or they just don't even care, or they are opposed to anything that even smacks of Christianity. They don't know what Christianity is typically, but they've rejected it wholeheartedly is what's happened. But the danger for a lot of us isn't so much that, if we're proclaiming Jesus as Lord. The danger for a lot of us is actually to live a controlled Christianity. The danger for a lot of us is to live a Christian life and a following of Jesus Christ's life where I get to choose my devotional and the verses I like, and I don't read the challenging stuff, where I get to choose when I go to, to worship and when I don't go to worship based on how I feel, not based on worshiping the God of the universe together with his believers where I get to choose what I want to do and who I want to share the gospel with based on my feelings, not based on the promptings of the Spirit and my dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ, where I'm a volunteer for the King and not a servant of the King. Those are the dangers of not living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ for most of us, where we need to give ourselves over wholeheartedly and reflect, is Jesus actually Lord of everything in my life? I know in my own story, I faced that when I was in college. Uh, you know, I'd generally been faithful to Christ for a long time, but I, I had been able to pick and choose quite easily. And even in studying theology, I had been able to pick and choose quite easily. But it's finally when God reached in and, and spoke decisively, and I remember it saying, I want you and I want all of you, and I want you now. You don't get to pick and choose. I want to be Lord of your life. And I know in our own family, uh, we haven't always done that perfectly, but I know that we've moved because of the call of God. We've made decisive changes in our family life and in our, our, the way we behave in the world because we want to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, honoring his call. It requires change of us. It requires action of us. It requires us to put ourselves before God as a living sacrifice, asking him to be Lord of all of our life. In a moment, we're going to go to the table and when we go to the table, part of what we're going to do today is to confess Jesus is Lord. We're going to read Romans 10, 9, and 10 as our confession and declaration of faith. 
And I encourage you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you've never actually made that confession, make that your first confession. Make that confession, you will be saved, then let's talk. If you sit here convicted this morning by the Spirit that there are areas of your life that need to be turned over, then make that a moment of prayer and declaration that, God, I'm listening to what you have for me. It's where I'm still withholding. If you don't feel convicted, make it a prayer for a little conviction. I think we all need it all the time. But ask yourself as you, you say that, that creed, which people like Polycarp said, and people a few ages have said we're joining into that faith. It's not just a personal creed. It's the creed, one of the creeds of the church. We're joining in with God's, or Jesus' bride, the church, by saying it. But ask yourself, what's the meaning of this confession? What am I saying when I actually confess these words? How am I joining in under the lordship of Jesus Christ and living under the resurrection power through Jesus?